0: We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast, and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends, because it matters what you think.
1: So in the first uh, talk I gave this morning, we concentrated on... Um, on what God does for us in the liturgy, where we looked at the Mass from the angle of it being God's work and God's self-gift to us. Um, And so in the second uh, talk, what I want to do is just look at it from the contrasting or or complementary would be a better way to put it, the complementary angle of the Mass is what we do uh, for God. And what we do for God or well, let's just say for God in the Mass, most basically in our worship is offered to, to God a sacrifice pleasing to him, make an offering pleasing to him. So what I want to think about in this talk is, what is this offering that we make to God? Why is it pleasing to him? And how exactly is it that we make this offering in the Mass? In other words, How is it that the Mass is a sacrifice? Um, Now, today, most Catholics who practice the faith look upon the Mass as the center of their religious and spiritual lives. We think of the Mass in many ways um, and rightly find all sorts of riches and significance in the Mass uh, that uh, that we can talk about. That the Mass is a sacrifice that we offer to God for the salvation of the world is, I think, for many Catholics today, not the first thing that comes to mind uh, when we think about uh, the Mass. Um, I remember talking to a a friend, a theologian friend, a a priest now retired in in his 80s who grew up in New York City, an Italian parish there, and he said, we always used to say of the Mass as the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, it was just the way we talked. Okay? Um, now we just speak of the Mass, so have we lost something uh, in the process here? Uh, I don't know if we've lost something, we'll talk more about that, but that, that sort of verbal observation of his captures, I think, something important about the way that we um, look at what we do in the Mass. Uh, so what I want to take, do this afternoon then is, is uh, appreciate the way in which the Mass presents itself to us uh, with unmistakable clarity as a sacrificial act and look a bit at the Church's teaching about the Mass as a true sacrifice. This is a teaching that's really utterly basic uh, to Catholic faith Um, and to the traditional appreciation of the Mass among Catholics. So I want to take a couple of steps toward understanding the sacrifice of the Mass and the Church's teaching about it. Um, I'll do this by considering four questions, which are in your your outline, uh, more or less in the following order, although there will be a little bit of mixing among uh, among the questions. So first of all, what does it mean to say that the Mass is a sacrifice? In other words, what are we saying when we use this language, when we call the Mass a sacrifice? Or another way to to put it is, what sort of sacrifice is this that we're offering? What are we doing in the Mass such that we rightly and properly call it a sacrifice? So that's the first question. Then the second question is, this is the one that uh, Sophie raised this morning uh, after the lecture, why should we think of the Mass in this way? I mean, what, what ground or reason do we have for thinking of the Mass as a sacrifice we offer to God? As we touched on uh, briefly this morning, not all Christians think of their worship in this way. Okay, So why should we think of the Mass as our sacrifice to God? Third, how do we participate, particularly how do the lay faithful participate in this Sacrificial action of the mass, um, and then lastly, what does this accomplish? What does our sacrificial act do? Um, what are uh, its fruits? So, first of all, then, um, under the heading "Verum Sacrificium," you're going to learn a little Latin if you uh, if you come to a Thomistic Institute uh, retreat. So, true sacrifice. Okay, Why, what what is it when? What are we saying when we say that in the Mass we offer a sacrifice? So the Mass is saturated with the language of sacrifice. Um, The Eucharistic prayers include in particular explicit petitions that God be pleased with our sacrifice. We ask God to be pleased with what we're doing. In just this time and place, not with what has been done elsewhere, but with what we are doing here and now, that God would be pleased with it and that he would accept it. The prayers do this not only by speaking of sacrifice explicitly, but also by speaking of gift, of offering, sometimes in the 2010 translation of the Mass, which, as you may have observed, is better than the previous one. but also more literal, partly better because it's more literal. Oblation, okay? Accept this oblation, I think, is, is a phrase used in the current version of the canon. Um, what's an oblation? It's an offering. Okay, It's the offering of something, uh, particularly the offering of something to God. So as speaking of gifts, offering, oblation, the, uh, the liturgy in a variety of ways is talking about the sacrificial act that we undertake, for example, the liturgy of the Eucharist begins in terms of our verbal participation in it, begins with our prayer for the acceptance of the sacrifice that we are going to offer as priests and people. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, we say, to the praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. So we begin the Eucharist by a, and this is something that the, the faithful say, okay? The, the priest bids us to say it, okay? Pray, brothers, okay? Orate fratres. Pray, brothers, that this, my sacrifice, and yours be acceptable. So right there, okay, you have in an utterly clear way the, the whole community's prayer to God, pleading with God, saying, we're going to do something here, and we hope you will accept it. So, again, attention, right? Don't don't just mumble through the prayer, you know, that's the next thing we do, um, so we can get this over with and get home and watch the cowboys, all right? Um What we're doing there is something profound. I mean, we are approaching God as one who will accept, who who we can ask to accept, something we do, an act that we undertake, and that's precisely an act uh, of sacrifice. And so in the canon, which um, is the Eucharistic prayer that that Father Damon used this morning, uh, continues immediately by pleading with God. I mean, the canon is particularly strong in this way of the the four Eucharistic prayers and the Missal. The canon is particularly strong. To you, therefore, most merciful Father, we make humble prayer and petition through Jesus Christ, your Son, only in union with him, that you accept and bless these gifts and offerings. Okay? The, The gifts that have been brought to the altar. So our gifts to God, We ask him to accept. And the prayers that lead up to the consecration intensify this petition that we make for the acceptance of our offering. And our our plea for acceptance is very closely tied to the divine act, the consecration that will transform bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. So, again, in the language of the canon, Therefore, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation, that is, this offering, of our service, of our liturgy, and then it goes on, be pleased, O God, we pray, to bless, acknowledge, and approve this offering in every respect, make it spiritual and acceptable so that it may become, for us, the body and blood of your most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So... Our prayer that our offering be accepted is precisely a prayer that our offering be something that God will transform into the most perfect gift, both a gift to us and a gift that we can give to him, which I will talk about more in the rest of this uh, lecture. I won't go through this in detail, but all the Eucharistic prayers say something about this. The canon is the most Explicit. The third Eucharistic prayer is pretty close to it, though, in terms of its its emphasis on the sacrificial character of what we're doing. Um, The second second Eucharistic prayer, the shortest of the of the four that's in the in the in the missal, still says, "We offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you, which literally means give you this service. Okay, give you this liturgy." So our beliefs and commitments as Catholics are nowhere more clear than in our worship, than in what we say and do as a community. So the church's liturgy shows, among its most essential features, that this liturgy is itself a sacrifice we offer to God with the aim of pleasing him that the liturgy itself is a certain kind of gift we offer to God. This is a quite basic Catholic conviction, evident to anyone who participates in the Mass and at least is paying attention. I remember the first time I went to a Catholic Mass, when I was in college, um, I had come to the faith as an adult uh, when I was a sophomore at Northwestern University. I'd been baptized in the Lutheran Church. Um, and I had some friends who also weren't Catholic, We liked to go to the cam- campus uh, Newman Center for mass uh, late in, in the weekday afternoons. Um, and I, I remember very clearly, the only, it's the only thing I really clearly remember about this, that when we got to the prayer, I didn't know any of the prayers of the mass, although I did learn them by going um, uh, on a fairly regular basis when I was in college. When we got to that prayer, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. Okay, I, I just heard people saying it. I didn't know the word. I said, "Huh? What's that?" Okay, this is not what I do in the Lutheran Church. Okay, I mean, I didn't mind. All right, so God was already pointing me in the right direction. But um, but I I knew. Okay, <laughs> that this was different. All right, that this was this was something that was quite distinctive about the worship that I was participating in, that we all thought it was a sacrifice we were offering to God through the hands of the priest. Now, the teaching of the church is also very clear about this. Especially at the Council of Trent, which uh, which Father Innocent mentioned briefly in his talk uh, earlier this afternoon, the church made a, a, a very Rich and profound statement about the sacrificial character of the Mass. This was in the year 1652, okay. so a while ago. But this is the sort of fullest doctrinal teaching of the Church right up to the present moment about the sacrificial character of the Mass. And so, for example, when Vatican II talks about the Mass of sacrifice in Sacrosanctum Concilium and a few other places, it just refers to the Council of Trent and says, This is is our our teaching. So the Council of Trent, which met off and on from 1645 to 1545 1545 to uh, to 1563, the Council of Trent was partly a response to Protestantism, but also partly and very much an internal Catholic effort at clarity and reform. And a, a very important part of that was the teaching on the sacrifice of the mass. So part of that teaching is this, that the Eucharist is a true sacrifice, in the language of the Council, a true and singular sacrifice, or true and unique sacrifice. Nothing else in this present world is a sacrifice in the way that the Mass is. And this means, first of all, that the Mass is a sacrifice in more than a figurative or metaphorical sense. It is a sacrifice in the full sense. It includes all the elements that are necessary for a genuine sacrifice. And that means in particular that the sacrificial character of the Mass involves more than it simply being an offering to God of praise and thanksgiving. It's perfectly legitimate to speak of a sacrifice of praise or an offering of praise, but the Council of Trent is quite explicit. In this this respect, uh, an explicit objection to Protestantism, it's not only that. It is also what the council calls a propitiatory sacrifice. It's part of what the council means by saying it is a true sacrifice. So let's think a bit about the notion of a propitiatory sacrifice, the, the language of propitiation may not be sort of something we all immediately think about when we wake up in the morning, so uh, may not be ordinary English for us, so let's think a bit about that. Um, this is essential to Catholic uh, teaching on the sacrificial character of the Mass. So in order to understand what Trent is saying when it speaks of the Eucharist or the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice, we need to look away from the Mass for a moment and uh, look at the cross, and the redemptive work of Christ. So sacrifice is, first of all, an offering to God. It's an act by which we devote ourselves to God. We give ourselves over to God, not only with our lips or in our thoughts, but with our whole lives. So sacrifice is really the most intense form of offering to God. It's the gift of our bodies, our goods, to God, it's the enacting of our inward intention. It's the playing out of the realizing of our inward intention to give ourselves completely to God. Jesus' sacrifice, as Father Damien reminded us this morning, is the perfect evening sacrifice precisely because he gives everything. Okay? He not only gives himself inwardly, he gives his body and his life. He pours out his blood to the Father for our salvation. So sacrifice is giving everything, giving oneself over completely to God. And an acceptable sacrifice is a self-gift, an inward and outward gift that pleases God. It's one that God takes in or receives as an appropriate measure or sign of our self-surrender to God. Now, so far, and classical discussions of sacrifice are clear about this, so far we're not talking about propitiation. So far we're talking about latria, okay? Worship, giving oneself over completely to God. And that doesn't involve propitiation yet, We would not need to talk about propitiation or anything else except self-gift if there were not sin to be reckoned with, Under the conditions of sin, a sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God must do more than make an offering that surrenders ourselves to God. It must make an offering that reconciles us to God. Again, we can't approach God in our current state without also being reconciled so that we can make an offering to him. So this has to be an offering that not only gives ourselves to God, but also expresses at the same time our sorrow for sin, our repentance, and our desire to repair the damage that has been done by our sin. Precisely by our previous failure to give ourselves over wholly to God, both individually and simply as human beings. So it's this sort of sacrificial offer, okay? one that not only gives ourselves over to God, but does so by accepting responsibility for sin, that is a propitiatory sacrifice, okay? that reconciles. That's really what propitiation is. It's an act that reconciles us to God. Now, this is, in fact, a fundamental idea that the idea of a propitiatory sacrifice is fundamental to biblical religion, to the religion of Israel in the Old Testament um, and to uh, Christ's saving work as it is described in the New Testament. So uh, just to note a couple of passages in the New Testament that speak of the redemptive act of Christ in just these terms as a propitiation or a propitiatory Sacrifice. For example, in 1 John 2, he is the propitiation okay, for our sins. I don't know how the uh, the NAB renders it. Um, it might even say propitiation, I'm not sure. But he is a propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay? 1 John 4, that's 1 John 2. 1 John 4, God loved us and sent his son as propitiation for our sins. Romans 3. Paul there speaks of Christ as the one whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a reconciling reality by faith in his blood. So this is very important for understanding Christ's redemptive act, that it is propitiatory. That is to say, It makes us acceptable to God. The term propitiation comes from the Latin adjective propitius, which means favorable or well-disposed, or in the standard English sense of the term, propitious, okay? It's a propitious occasion, all right? It is a favorable occasion, okay? So when John says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, his statement is clearly this, that because of what Christ does, God is favorable or well disposed to the world in spite of our sins. So that's the fundamental notion of propitiation as accomplished by Christ on the cross. Now, Catholic faith and Catholic doctrine hold that not only the cross, but the Eucharist is a propitiatory sacrifice, Okay. Again, the Council of Trent emphasizes that the Eucharist, the Mass, is not only a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It is certainly that. That's what Eucharistia means. It means thanksgiving, right? But it is also, and indispensably, a sacrifice of propitiation. It is a sacrifice that reconciles us to God. Because of what we do in the Mass, if it's truly a propitiatory sacrifice, as Catholic doctrine teaches, because of what we do in the Mass, God is favorable or well disposed to those who offer it, To offer this sacrifice and is favorable or well-disposed, propitious to those for whom the sacrifice is offered. That is to say, for whom the offerers, that's us, intend, those for whom the offerers intend the goods of the sacrifice to apply. So when we come to Mass and when we participate in the Mass, we should have some sense of our intention in participating in it. And what who it is, besides ourselves, of course, that we hope to benefit from our participation and from the mass itself. So why then, this is obviously an important question, why see the Mass as a sacrifice in this sense? Why not to put The matter in terms of a classic Protestant objection, hasn't Christ made the perfect, once for all, and sufficient sacrifice for all the sins of the world? Granted that he has, as the letter to the Hebrews, for example, repeatedly teaches, there is no need, and indeed no possibility, for any further sacrifice. So why is it that the Church, in fact, the Catholic Church, in fact, insists that not only is it possible for us? to offer a sacrifice in the mass, but we must do so. We must understand uh, what we're doing here as fundamentally a sacrificial act. The reason we have to see the mass as a sacrifice, again, the Council of Trent in its decree on the sacrifice of the mass insists. The reason we have to see the mass as a sacrifice is that in instituting the Eucharist for us, Jesus explicitly presents or interprets his own forthcoming death as a voluntary sacrifice offered to God for the sins of the world. By his words and deeds in the upper room, he made his death a sacrifice. He made it what it otherwise would not have been. If Jesus had been killed in his bed by Roman soldiers without the opportunity for the events of the upper room, his death would not have been a sacrifice. Because a sacrifice has to be offered. A sacrifice also involves the outpouring of the blood of the sacrificed one. But a sacrifice has to be offered. It's not just the outpouring of blood. It's the outpouring of blood offered for some purpose. In Jesus' case, of course, offered for the salvation of the world. So it's in the upper room that Jesus does this, that he offers his body to be crucified, his blood to be shed for the salvation of the world. He makes it a sacrifice by his act in the upper room. This is my body, he offers to the Father in the upper room. He's praying to the Father, right? Remember when he says, this is my body, which will be given up, he then says to the apostles, for you. So he offers to the Father sacramentally in the upper room his crucified body, which will be immolated, destroyed, literally, on the cross. This is the chalice of my blood, which will be poured, which will be poured out for a sacrificial purpose, for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So in instituting the Eucharist, Jesus makes an offering of his body and blood, his crucified body, his body to be crucified, his blood to be shed, to the Father for our salvation. But at the same time, He institutes the Eucharist to be celebrated by us, to be offered by the church until the end of time. For having made his once for all offering to the Father, his once for all offering to the Father in the upper room, the offering that aims at the cross, he says to the apostles, attend, do this in memory of me. Do what I have just done. Don't do something else than what I have just done, which is offer my body, body and blood to the Father for the salvation of the world. You do what I just did. You make my offer. I just did it. Now you're going to do it. You're going to have to wait till I'm crucified and so forth but and rise from the dead. But that's what you're going to do. Do this. So you want to know why we should think about the Mass as a sacrifice? Because Jesus told us to. Okay. He said, do what I did. Don't just listen. Don't just believe. Not that these are insignificant. These are necessary. But having listened and having believed, do this. So in instituting the Eucharist and saying do this, Not just this is, my body, but do this. He gives us a share in the offering of his saving sacrifice. Now, we are unworthy to have such a share in his sacrifice. Only because of what he does can we have any share in it, and only because he gives us a share. And we participate in his sacrifice? But that is exactly what we do in the Mass every day. He could have said, I have done it, you do nothing. Okay? Sorry, Martin Luther. If you were right, that's what he would have said. Right? But that's not what he said. He said, I've done this, now you do it. I've made a sacrifice, you make a sacrifice. You make my sacrifice. You participate, unworthy though you are, in my sacrifice for the sins of the world. I wanted to say a bit about why God would want a sacrifice in the first place. For the sake of time, I'll... I'll, Simply refer you back to what Father Ignatius said, and I think also Father Damon in his homily. The heart of sacrifice is love, right? The heart of sacrifice is charity, it's self-gift. So, Thomas Aquinas, for example, he's not unusual in this regard, but uh, he, he makes very emphatically the, the observation that Christ. Death on the cross is pleasing to God, not simply because, you know, God needs to kill somebody in order to forgive our sins, but be, now quoting St. Thomas, because of the love with which he offered his blood. Okay? Because of his charity, his unsurpassable, his supreme charity, which again, we he then gives us the opportunity to join in, to share in, uh, in the mass. So uh, that's the heart of the matter, I think, when it comes to why our offering is pleasing uh, to God. Um, now, how do we participate in this as the lay the lay faithful? Um, this is something as a convert to Catholicism, it sort of took me a while to uh, appreciate. We have a lot of opportunities actually to uh, to participate. Um, I already mentioned one really important one by having an intention uh, when, we, when we go to Mass and when we participate in the Mass. Um, you know, don't just, we don't just go in and sit down and say, oh, well, I wonder what the homily is going to be like today. Um, we, we offer our, par- our participation in the sacrifice of, of Christ for some purpose um of course an intention is normally announced also uh for this mass of an intention of the whole community okay typically for uh Someone has asked the mass to be said for um, someone who has died, um, but not always. Sometimes it's uh, it, it's a living intention, but we can add our own intentions to that. I mean, it's not as though we enter the mass, and say, "Well, you know, we're praying for um, for Maria, who you know who just died," and so that's it. Okay, we no, no. We offer also our own intentions uh, with the sacrificial act of the church. The canon, among its many beautiful aspects, is that it gives in two different places an opportunity for us to make our intentions. Um, And uh, if the priest is paying attention, there will be a period of silence, not a really long period, but a period where we can add our living intentions first and then our intentions for those who have died uh, later on uh, in the canon. Um, uh, We participate by attentively praying that the sacrifice be acceptable, as I've already mentioned. So the, the prayer at the beginning uh, of the Eucharist, uh, Eucharistic rite is uh, a, a way of entering in uh, to the sacrifice. We participate by our amen to the completed sacrificial act of the priest through him, with him, and in him. Amen. Okay. Um, we participate in the sacrificial act by our love for Christ crucified, who offers himself for our salvation, and by receiving him bodily. In love for Him crucified, who offered once for all a pleasing sacrifice to the Father. So, what are the fruits of the Eucharistic sacrifice? Um, the first fruit I've already touched on, at least in a in a in a quick way. Um, is that the mass pleases God? Um, again, the Council of Trent is very clear about this. It's very precise. Quote the Council, of, quoting the Council of Trent: "In the divine sacrifice, which is carried out in the mass, the same Christ is contained and sacrificed without blood, who offered himself once for all in blood." On the altar of the cross, the victim is one and the same. The same one now offers by the ministry of priests who offered himself then on the cross. Only the manner of offering differs. In other words, the very body and blood that were crucified and poured out on the cross are the body and blood that we offer the Father in the Mass. It's not a copy of it um, or you know a, a reprint. Um, it's the one and the same reality that Christ himself offered, is what we offer. And God is pleased with this sacrifice. A second, well, I mean, to state the obvious, why is God pleased with this sacrifice? Because he is pleased with Christ, okay? Because he is pleased with the offering of his son, in which we share which his son has not only allowed us, but commanded us to undertake ourselves. You do this. So a second fruit of the Eucharist, is not simply that God is pleased, but that accepting our offering, God pours out gifts upon us. God gives us gifts because of the offering that we have made. Or, if you like, because of our sharing in the once-for-all offering of Christ in the Mass. So when we approach God by offering the sacrifice of the Mass with a sincere heart and right faith, this is the Council of Trent, we obtain mercy. So that the Mass has as its fruit the mercy of God. God is merciful to us because of the sacrifice we offer in the Mass. We obtain mercy, this is, these are just the words of the Council of Trent, and find grace in time of need. God grants for, Trent goes on to say, grace and the gift of repentance through the sacrificial act of the Mass. We might think of grace, depending on how good our Catholic education was, we might think of grace as something just there all the time, um, that's just sort of given by God willy-nilly, um, and sort of, you can't miss it. Uh, grace may be there, but it's there because of sacrifice. It's there because of the sacrifice of Christ and because of the sacrifice of the Mass. There is grace in the world then because of the church's offering in the Mass, which is, of course, completely dependent on and a sharing in the offering of Christ. And here I think it's precisely here that the matter of having an intention is important because in the Mass, We're asking for God's mercy and grace, not just in general, but with regard to a specific need or intention that we have. And God's gift of mercy and grace is, in fact, not separable from someone's intention of it. Now, we might think it odd, you know, that God would, would wait for us to ask for something in order to give it. We might, we might think that, um, no, no, it doesn't matter. God will do whatever he's going to do regardless. Um, but that's the odd thing about the uh, the true God, you know, the God of Israel and, and of the church. Um, that this is a God who asks us to pray. Um, and he asks us to pray. in the certain hope that through our prayer we will receive what our prayer asks for, what our prayer requests. Now, not all gods are like this, right? Um, And not all gods of the various religions of the world are like this. Um, In Islam, for example, You can pray, of course, but God's going to do what God's going to do. And that's that's very clear. And you you submit to what God is going to do. But the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ listens to our prayers and will act on the basis of our prayers, not simply insofar as they're requests that come to our minds, but insofar as they are tied to Our self-offering, which depends on our sharing in the once-for-all offering of Christ, which is what the Mass does. So we know our intentions. And what we ought to know is that they will bear fruit in the church's sacrifice. That God will give mercy and grace in the Mass. And so I hope this will make our intentional participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice, in the sacrifice of the Mass, a central feature of our lives as Catholics. Thanks very much. I deliberately left plenty of time for questions. I left out a fair amount of my talk so we had time for, uh, for questions. So, yeah. Yes, uh, Rob? Yeah.
0: Um, so uh, earlier you said that the uh, Christ sacrifice mm-hmm. needed to be offered by him uh, locally. Um, I know, well, I think it's that says mm-hmm. <laughs> that not that that's what the Dominicans here, so I don't want to say anything about it. But that uh, the blood being poured out of the circumcision would have been sufficient for the salvation of the whole world. So was it not because? Was it not because he didn't
1: locally do it? I mean, I guess he willfully got himself to the law, but I don't know. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting question. Um, and uh, uh, he does say that. Um, so I take it that what he means is uh, that the intrinsic value of what of Christ's blood, is is immeasurable, okay? So that it had the worth to accomplish whatever God wanted to accomplish by way of it. Uh, But St. Thomas is also quite emphatic um, that in order for the saving blood of Christ in its infinite worth to be valuable for us and to avail or to have an effect in our life, there has to be more that happens, okay, than simply that it be shed. There has to be a human act that makes that effective uh, in our lives. So he doesn't address this question explicitly, but I say as to why... It's the cross that is, in fact, the oblation that, uh, or the completion of the oblation that 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 reconciles the world, and not, you know, the blood of the circumcision. Um, But if he were asked, I think he would say, "Well, yeah. I mean, the worth of the thing that is offered is one crucial element of a sacrifice, and what's offered on the cross and in the Mass is of infinite worth." But he quotes, and medieval theologians almost always quote in connection with this, the widow's might. okay? She gave the least in terms of of the object that she offered, but she loved the most. So her sacrifice was the most acceptable, okay? So the idea, I think, is there that if, if you were asked, I think you would say, well, yeah, I mean, the reason it's the cross and not the circumcision that's, that we celebrate as our, you know, the event of our salvation is because the cross is actually deliberately offered by Christ for us. One thing that's important historically here is that the sacrifice of the Mass was not a controversial question at the time of St. Thomas. And, and never had been. There had, there had never been debates within the Western church. Is the mass a sacrifice? Is the mass not a sacrifice? Then how is it a sacrifice? It had simply been taken for granted that it is. And so St. Thomas actually has a very modest discussion, one article precisely in the Summa Theologia on the mass as a sacrifice, question 83, article one of part three. Um, and that's actually more than some other of his you know, medieval scholastic contemporaries have. So it's only with the Protestant rejection of Eucharistic sacrifice in the 16th century that you really begin to have an elaborate uh, theology of Eucharistic sacrifice in the, in the Western church. So St. Thomas, the kind of question that you just asked is a, is a sort of post-Reformation question, all right, It's a question that Thomas didn't ask, I think, because it wasn't a problem. At least that would be my, you know, it's a hypothetical claim, of course, but that would be my my way of, of looking at it, yeah. So, other, thing. yeah, please.
0: Uh, so, I appreciated you mentioning the mass as a sacrifice offered on of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think Lumen Dentium kind of uses some language that refers to also the church as the sacrament of God to the world, yeah. I kind of see this in the activity of like martyrs, yeah. Um, I guess, do you see any sort of connection or do you see some sort of way that the mass like helps us? be like act sacrificially towards other people in the world or how how are those two concepts connected?
1: Yeah. Um, well, how could anyone possibly love their enemies unless they were in the process or in the act of giving their life over to God. Um, You know, you, how would you love those who might want to kill you? Um, Who hate you, you know, who, who spit on you and throw things at you when you're standing, you know, outside of an abortion clinic, praying the rosary. How can you love them if you're not willing to die out of love for God? And that's what the mass enacts. It, it it it's our it's our giving over of ourselves to God completely. Okay, and so I think it it it's the basis of everything that we do really as a as a church, you know, in the world that makes our 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 love for God and for the world visible. And of course, the world sometimes accepts our love and sometimes rejects it. I, I, that may have not be at all the kind of, kind of answer you were looking for. So please, I mean, you know, re-ask your question if, you, if I could uh, get at it in a different most way. Most okay. most the the idea that, I
0: the that if we have received everything from God, including his, his own self, and mm. the fact that he became like, in flesh and mm. even consumed him, right. then there's kind of reciprocal giving of you're participating in that sacrifice that Christ gave you're also participating in that sacrifice, you know, for the world, you are mm-hmm. also kind of I guess beaten or yeah. kind
1: of crucified yeah. by way by the world. All right. All right. Uh, please. Um, yeah. I'm wondering um, why yeah. why do you
0: think that you shift in
1: emphasis um, from the
0: mass as sacrifice to the mass as a celebration from the fifteenth century to the twentieth century Where the
1: That's a good question. Um, Father Innocent can say more, I think. This is a, partly a question in the history of you know, liturgy. Um, I, this is just a kind of intuition, right? I mean, I don't, this sort of thing, can, kind of question can be answered by careful study of the historical sources and stuff of the 20th century. So, up to Vatican II, all right, up to 1962 and the, you know, all the momentous events of the Council, there was a very lively theological discussion. Uh, lots of books and, and articles written about the Eucharistic sacrifice. In fact, it was, it was almost a kind of major topos of, of Catholic theology from, say, the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. Uh, how is the Eucharist to sacrifice? Different theories of the sacrificial character of the Eucharist debated among Catholic theologians. A very lively topic. And then after the Council, like, in fact, Father Damien and I were talking about this before lunch, it just sort of disappears, right? Um, and now it's starting to, to be rekindled, okay? And people are writing more about about sacrifice and going back to the historical sources of uh, Catholic teaching on sacrifice. So why, you know, this sudden sort of disappearance of an interest? The intuition I have would be that um, at the time of Vatican II, it, it didn't seem as though that were the, uh, the note that needed to be emphasized. At least to many, many Catholics, including you know, many bishops and priests, that not, was not the note that needed to be emphasized in order to be a sacrament of salvation to the world. Okay, nothing is denied. I mean, if you read the you read the Vatican II again, I mean, it, it's it's completely. Embraces the teaching of the Council of Trent on the sacrifice of the Mass. There's no no change, no no watering down of it. Um, of course, Vatican II also says that Latin should remain the liturgical language of the Church. Okay, and uh, and that's not exactly what happened. So, um, uh, I, I think it was the it was the, sort of the way that the Council was perceived, uh, particularly in the first generation or so after, that our our openness to the world, our our being a sign, a sacrament sign of salvation to the world, ought to emphasize other aspects. Okay, all emphasize our love for the for for every human being, the dignity of every human being. These are all of course fundamental and important matters. Um, but somehow I think sacrifice was at least in some quarters seen as as not helping with that. Okay. Um, now I don't know what you know catechesis was like, you know, in your know, sort of average, you know, Irish or Italian parish in, in Boston, in, in New York in 1940. I mean, I don't know how much they learned about sacrifice either, but it is pretty clear that, that uh, it was a sort of drop-off, at least in, in the, at the theological level, in worrying about this. Uh, but I think, I think it's coming back. I think we're, we're catching a wave here. Um, yeah, go ahead, Sophie. Like,
0: what do you think it says about like, who Luther was or like, what he valued to like, not see the mass... As a sacrifice? Or, like, how do you think you saw the person of Christ as different
1: as Catholics see it? I don't think, well, all right, that, that's a, a complicated question. Um, and it's always a dodge, of course, for professors to say, well, that's a big question, so I'm not going to answer it. But um, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I, it's, his view of the person of Christ is not that different, and there are some issues we could talk about, but it's not that different from traditional Catholic views. Lutherans don't always recognize this, but he says very explicitly that Christ makes satisfaction to the Father, right? that Christ offers a sacrifice to the Father. So Luther doesn't, doesn't disagree with that, but he just has a sort of intuition, an incorrect one in my view, but in, you know, in a Catholic view, an incorrect one, but kind of intuition that look, Christ himself offers the sacrifice, we don't offer it, okay. Right? So he's not differing from Catholic teaching so much on the person of Christ, but he's differing hugely on, on the Mass. Okay? And in fact, he rewrote the Mass uh, in the 1520s. He, he wrote the so-called German Mass, Deutsche Messe, and he, he did this precisely in order to excise all the sacrificial language uh, from Mass so that we wouldn't see the Mass, recalling something I said this morning, we wouldn't see the Mass as a good work. Okay? We are not saved by our good works. we are saved by what and for Luther, that really means let's be clear, we're not saved by anything we do. OK And that means we're saved by Christ's act, uh, which we receive in faith. And so the mass is the presentation of Christ's once for- all saving act to us that we receive in faith. It is not we offer things to God in, in, in the mass or in, in, in worship. and Luther called it the mass. Um, we offer thanksgiving, we offer praise, uh, but we offer nothing that contributes to propitiation, okay? to the reconciliation of the world with God, to the forgiveness of sins. That's completely excluded. So that's how I would parse it. It's not that he differs on the person of Christ, but he differs in a big way on what we do in the Mass. like, what do
0: you think is it about him as a
1: person? About Luther as a person? <laughs> um, I haven't learned your name yet. Oh,
0: my name is Grace. I was thinking, you Grace. are you familiar with the Small called article? Uh, I'm very familiar so with them. About the Mass and those. Maybe you comment on that way, like, it be rejected. Even
1: though it's from Oxford. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, Luther hated the Mass. He said, it I mean, the traditional Mass. is it's the worst abuse of all. All the abuses that he sees in the Catholic Church, he says in the Babylonian captivity, are are all they all flow from the Mass. Okay? They're all rooted in the idea that we can offer something to God that's pleasing to him for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? It, all goes, it all goes back to that. Okay? Um, so when he talks about you know, indulgences, and, and, and this historical picture is complicated, but when he talks about you know, indulgences and you know, uh, sort of rapaciousness of the church, you know, wanting, you know, wanting the offerings and donations for pilgrimages and all sorts of other things, Why is this a problem? I mean, what's the root? I mean, it's a problem because it's salvation by works, in his view. i say salvation by something we do. But it all goes back to the idea that the Mass is something we do that pleases God. What do I think about him as a person, he he was a genius. Now, maybe he was an evil genius, but he was a genius. I mean, he reinvented Christianity in about three years. (laughs) From the time of the posting of the 95 Theses in the fall of of 1517 until his his excommunication in 1521, uh, so four years, three and a half, he had basically completely reinvented Christianity. Uh, In some ways, of course, an obvious continuity with the Christianity that had existed before, but in other ways in just dramatic discontinuity in a way that made it persuasive to people. Not everybody, of course, a lot of people were unpersuaded by it, but he was able to read the Bible and appeal to people's sense of where they were and what they needed uh, in a sort of astonishing way. Um, And a big part of his reinvention is um, his treatment of the mass. I mean, I think in a way that's that's the heart of it. there's a very good book on this, if you're really interested, by a Catholic uh, historian at the University of Cambridge named Richard Rex. The book is called The Making of Martin Luther. Uh, it's a very scholarly book. It's, it's easy, a good read. He's a very good writer. But it's quite scholarly, and he just goes sort of step by step through Luther from 1517 to 1521, and sort of describes this reinvention of Christianity. Uh, he's not very sympathetic to it, as as I no longer am either, but um, I was never that sympathetic to it. I always wanted to read Luther as not wanting to reinvent Christianity, but um, and Grace doesn't think he does either. But um, uh, and we can talk about that. I mean, that's an alternative reading of Luther. And it's the one that I actually had as a Lutheran. But but Rex gives a really nice account of the kind of basic steps that Luther takes, and you got to say, I mean, the guy. I mean, he was a he was a. A major figure of world history. I mean, he he was able to do something, not really intending to, just out of his kind of religious passion and, and you know, uh, concern to sort of create a new Christianity. I mean, it was really kind of astonishing, or at least a significantly altered Christianity, if you like. But um, yeah, so I don't know if I'd have enjoyed having beer with him. He was a big drinker. <laughs> If I had a choice, I'd rather have, have beer with Thomas Aquinas. Um, yeah, probably wine, right? He was an Italian,
0: right? If
1: you go back to the Old Testament, um, and Father Ness and I have both said a little bit about this, uh, God's presence in the world Depends on the sacrificial acts of the Jewish people, and it's in 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 the Torah, you know, in Leviticus particularly, which is you know a book that unfortunately Christians, not just Catholics, but Christians don't read that much. Um, it's a hugely important book. I mean, it, it contains the the sort of ritual and theology of sacrifice in it in its core of the Old Testament. Um, And it's very clear. It's very vivid. God dwells in the midst of the people of Israel. And he dwells particularly in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And in order for God to dwell there, there has to be ritual purity in the temple. The instrument of ritual purity is blood, or the agent, as a Jewish scholar friend of mine likes to call it, the ritual detergent is blood. Blood cleanses the ritual area or the holy area, the space where God dwells. And if that space becomes impure through the sins of the, Jewish, of the people of Israel, God is going to leave. All right? So this goes really deep in the biblical conception of God. And it's, of course, you know. in a way, the answer comes down to why is sacrifice necessary? Because that's the way God set it up. <laughs> but why did God set it up that way? Well, Thomas Aquinas has a very helpful thing to say about this, I think. God could have just forgiven our sins by declaration, okay? Um, Said, okay, I'm not going to regard you as sinners anymore. And in fact, if God said you're not sinners anymore, then we wouldn't be sinners anymore. I mean, God doesn't make fictive declarations. But God has instead willed that sins will be forgiven, grace will be given by our action. Of course, all in union with and independence on the action of Christ, the human action of Christ, so that we can have a share in our own salvation, so that we can have a share in the forgiveness of sins. St. Thomas is very explicit about this. This is in question 46 uh, on why God, of uh, the third part, why God willed to save the world through the passion of Christ when, uh, he, of course, he could have saved the world without it. Right. Well, the passion of Christ is something that we too can share. He's very, very plain about this. And this is a better way for God to save us than it would be for God to simply say, okay, you're all good. Uh, go about your business. Like every other question that's been asked, a lot more could be said about it, but that's that would be my initial answer anyway. Thanks so much.